What is up, everyone? We have a special edition of Grunt Talk Sports. I'm joined by Angels reporter Jeff Fletcher. He has a book coming out on Shohei Otani. He also has a Hall of Fame vote. So this is a tremendous honor. Jeff, thank you so much for joining today. Sure. Thanks for having me. Of course. So I guess I'll get to um, the Hall of Fame because that seems to be a hot topic at this moment. I saw some tweets you were exchanging at you would vote for Barry Bonds, I believe. Uh, you said that you thought he was good to the me- he wasn't as bad to the media as people made him out to be because I know he gets a bad rap. So I'm curious what your experience with him were like. Uh, yeah, I voted for Barry Bonds every year. Um, he was not great with the media, but it wasn't that big of a deal. You know, it didn't really wasn't too much of a problem covering him. You know, when when he would. Uh, be kind of prickly you would just shrug your shoulders and move on and talk to somebody else so it's not like uh i personally or i think most of the the beat writers that dealt with him all the time like really felt angry or anything like that about it or wanted to get back at him or anything it was just uh you know just a part of having to deal with him there's all, all kinds of players have all sorts of different personalities and there's a lot of them that uh are hard to deal with even if they're not jerks just because you know they're not available or they don't say anything so uh Barry was not really any kind of a special case. Okay. I mean, that's good to know. It provides good talk context. Uh, I'm an aspiring reporter myself. I'm hoping to get these interviews one day with some players. Actually, going to minor league or later, so getting my reps in. But in terms of the Hall of Fame and Barry Bonds, um, I didn't know if I saw your ballot. If you would want to fully disclose it, I guess you could do that. Yeah, I voted for uh, Bonds, Clemens, Alex Rodriguez, Manny Ramirez, Gary Sheffield, uh, Kurt Schilling, David Ortiz, and Todd Helton. I believe that's eight. So that's actually a pretty good ballot. I know a lot of people don't want to vote for the steroid guys because they think it's um, damaged the game and stuff. But my argument, I think maybe the way you see it too, I'm curious, is that I'm going to assume you think there's some guys in the Hall of Fame that probably use steroids, right? Oh yeah, for sure. So. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't. So. Uh, it's it's hard to to really start drawing lines of who did what and how much it affected them, and you know when did they start, and you know how much better would they have been with it or without it. And this guy, you know, was during a year when there was no testing, and this guy was a year when there was testing, and I just avoid it, and I just pretty much vote for the guys who I I think their performance was was most worthy. That's completely respectable. I know it was a tough time. Baseball turns a black eye in the situation. Now they want to try to police in certain aspects. It definitely seems hypocritical at moments. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to, you know, it's it's hard enough to just if you're only judging their performance because you're really cutting a very fine line between, you know, the top 1% of all time and the top 2%. It's really hard to do only on performance. And then if you're going to start trying to judge people's character, then it's just becomes almost impossible. So I don't even try. Right. That makes perfect sense. So take me into your journey in the baseball. How did you get started with everything? Yeah, well, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be a doctor, but then I realized that that required way too much school. So uh, I I realized that they pay people to watch baseball games and write about them. So since I was maybe uh, 14 years old or so, that was pretty much what I set my mind to do. And uh, I went to journalism school at Ohio University and, uh, had three internships while I was at school, the LA Times, the Knoxville News Sentinel, and the Baltimore Sun. Uh, my first job was at the LA Times, and I covered like a small college and some started covering some minor league baseball. 
And then I got hired to cover the Giants and the A's for the Santa Rosa Press Democrat, which is just a little north San Francisco and wine country. So that was where I really became a baseball writer. I did that for uh, 11 or 12 seasons. So, uh, and then from there, I went to, uh, to cover in the Angels. Actually, I had a, a job as a national baseball writer in between their AOL fan house, which is, I don't know if people remember that. It was kind of like the athletic before the athletic. And okay. uh, it was, just lasted for two years. It was great. But uh, unfortunately, it didn't last. And uh, I've been covering the Angels since 2013. Nice. Um, I actually wasn't familiar with the fan house. I was looking at your bio a little bit. I didn't notice that. That was probably before I really started watching baseball. I started watching heavily in like 2002 and stuff, actually around the time the Angels won the World Series. So I know you were very prominent in that. Now, at that point when the Angels won the World Series, were you with the Giants? I was covering the Giants then during that World Series, yes. Oh, nice. So what was your favorite stop along the way? Do you like Angels, Giants, or A's? Uh, I mean, all the jobs uh, had their pluses and minuses. I think the best job from a pure standpoint was was actually the one at Fan House because I could just write whatever I wanted and I could write all the good, fun stories without having to worry about dragging myself to, you know, all over the country to Kansas City, you know, and chasing down whether a guy had a sore hamstring or not. I could just do, like, the big fun stories and the playoffs and the World Series and all, all that kind of thing. But uh, as far as uh, my other jobs covering a team, you know, I think the Angels, uh, I've enjoyed this the most because I've really been covering pretty much all the games, home and a road. Uh, when I covered the Giants and A's, I sort of was split time between the two of them, which is not ideal. So uh, this is pretty good right now. That's cool. Um, I definitely want to dive into your experiences with the Angels. Um, you definitely have some cool information from them. So let's start with the book. Um, the Shohei Otani book is coming out. Um, we have it as our thumbnail now. So I'm really excited about this. You see this hat I'm wearing is actually a Shohei Otani hat. It's from A Style Clothing. Everyone can check that out. We got the link in the description here. But um, so let me know about your experiences with him and like what went into writing the book. Well, I started writing it in 2018 when he first made his kind of splash into the major leagues. And uh, I got about a quarter of the way through and then he got hurt. And uh, the publisher at the time was uh, not interested anymore in doing it at that time because he was no longer a two-way player. So they said, you know, we'll get back to you. Uh, nothing really happened anymore. And then until 2021, and all of a sudden he's great again and he's a two-way player. So then there was more interest in, uh, from other publishers as well. And it finally came together after the season. Uh, I wrote pretty much the whole thing uh, during the winter. And uh, it's, it's been really a good experience, too. It's my first time writing a book like this, and, and it's been really fun to, uh, to kind of go back and, and revisit a lot of the things that happened in his story. I'm just sure this definitely has to be some cool moments. So what was something that stood out to you about? I'll talk about the baseball, too, but what about him as a person maybe that people don't know? Well, I mean, I think I, you know, you talk to a lot of the people around him and, and he is really just a, totally focused on baseball, but he really has a pretty loose attitude. I mean, he's, he's relaxed uh, around the clubhouse. He likes to have a lot of fun. He plays a lot of video games. I guess they have a ping pong table in the clubhouse that he, he goes uh, pretty hard at sometimes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I remember before we were, we're not, haven't been allowed in the clubhouse in a while because of COVID, but before we were, they had a little basketball hoop in there and, and Otani, who I don't think had too much basketball experience growing up, but still enjoyed playing that. So uh, he's definitely a, a fun guy, but he really is, you know, 
besides those kind of little relaxing things, uh, is just seems totally focused on baseball. And uh, he's totally committed to, to being the best baseball player he can be, which is, I think you have to be in order to do what he's done. A hundred percent, especially to take both sides of the field like that. I know many people are skeptical if that could actually translate in American baseball has, obviously. So I'll go back to like when you first saw him or first started covering him. So do you think it was possible for him to be a two-way player? Well, I mean, we all thought it was possible, you know, when he first joined the Angels uh, in December 2017, because he'd obviously done it in Japan and been pretty good, and that's a high level in Japan. But then a spring training of 2018, it did not look good. Uh, nobody probably outside of the Angels organization uh, certainly had total confidence that he was going to be able to do it because he, he had a lot of adjustments to make. And I think there were a lot of people thought he was going to start in the minor leagues. But the Angels said all along, whenever anybody asked, don't worry, he's going to be fine. He can do it. We've seen him do it in Japan. Just relax. And uh, they were right because when the season started in 2018, the, the light went on and, and he was great. So he's really been – anytime he's been healthy, uh, he's been really good at both hitting and pitching. So it's it's been uh, really fun to watch. That's exceptional. Like I told you in our messages, I got to see him at the All-Star game. Uh, it wasn't the upper deck, but just the reception he had, like the whole feeling around the stadium when he was in there, like the home run derby announcement was incredible. Um, it was just really a fun weekend. What was your All-Star experience like? Yeah, it was pretty crazy to watch, you know, to see how much of a star he was, even among all the All-Stars. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a media day before the all-star game and you get all the players together and, you know, they're all sitting at tables one by one and you can walk down the rows and do interviews with everybody. And if you just walk down and listen, they're all talking about Otani, you know, you got Justin Turner talking about Otani, Freddie Freeman talking about Otani, Max Muncy talking about Otani, uh, Garrett Cole, just like every guy seemed to recognize that, yeah, we're all all-stars, but he is kind of on a different group. That's yeah, he definitely took the scene. The reception for him was the loudest by far. It was a great thing for him. It was a good um introduction kind of to a lot of people that didn't know him. I think he opens up a lot of eyeballs that weekend. I mean, he had started off the season fantastic with all the home runs and stuff. And the fact he made history by starting the game and, and starting it on the mound and hitting that's never happened before. So that was really cool to watch as well. Yeah, it was great. It was uh you know, it was a lot of work for him i'm sure you know the home run derby is very exhausting and uh you know max muncie mentioned you know he'd been in a home run derby and he played lots of games in colorado which is it's a tough place to play physically and he said he couldn't imagine competing in a home run derby in colorado and then pitching the next day and that's what otani did it was only one inning but still he definitely put himself out there for the the purpose of the show Yes, he did. He could tell the home run derby. He had an epic showdown at Juan Soto. He didn't end up winning, but the show was amazing. He hit a bunch of moonshots there. We know how the ball travels at Coors Field. That was actually my first time there. Definitely one of my favorite stadiums. I've done a few, but um, that was a great atmosphere. I totally enjoyed that weekend. Yeah, Colorado was a nice ballpark, and, and the All-Star game was a, was a pretty good show. Yep. So speaking of other angels, um, what are your thoughts on Mike Trout? Is he obviously is one of the best players you've ever seen. So I'm going to ask an interesting question. I guess it's hard to compare it to, but how does Trout and Barry Bonds compare to each other? Would you say? Uh, it's pretty much apples and oranges. Uh, Barry Bonds was the most 
ridiculous offensive player that I've ever seen. You know, obviously there were some other factors going into how he did it, but just as far as what he did, there is no comparison to anybody else that I've ever seen. I mean, I think if you, you go, you got to go back and just look at his baseball reference page. Three years that his OPS was like 1400. I mean, that's just insane. You know, he had like a on base percentage over 500 slugging percentage in the 800s. It was just ridiculous what he was doing. Uh, Mike Trout is obviously a different stage in his career than Bonds was. Uh, he's more of a well-rounded player, better defensive player, faster, uh, all that kind of stuff. But uh, they're both great players. I agree 100%. So what's something that you've noticed of Mike Trout being around him? I know the injury was a big setback this year. Is anyone concerned about how he might recover from that? And um, well, how do you think his career is going to play out? Do you think he's going to stay with Anaheim or – if things don't go better, could he actually explore elsewhere? Well, I mean, he's got a contract for another 10 or 11 years, so he's not going anywhere unless he wants to. Uh, right. I think that he's pretty much going to stick around. Um, it's also hard to trade a guy once he gets that kind of a contract because it's a lot of money, and now you're going to start getting into his older years where you know the production is probably going to go down at some point. So um, I think he's going to be with the Angels for the rest of his career. Uh, I think as for the injuries, there is some concern, certainly among Angels fans. You know, he had this injury that really wasn't expected to keep him out for all of 21, for most of 21. It's just a strained calf. And I think that's got a lot of people worried. He was also hurt uh, back in 2017. He had a, an injury. He missed some time in 2018. So uh, he missed the time at the end of 2019. Uh, so I think that there's some people that are a little concerned. But to me, I think, you know, a couple of these injuries are kind of flukish things. And I think that it's still a little early to, to write him off and think that this is going to be the way it goes. Certainly, we hope it doesn't. I mean, you look at a guy like Ken Griffey Jr., you look at the great start he had his career, and then he got hurt a lot once he went to the Reds, and he didn't really end up with the whole career that maybe people thought he would have. It's still a great career, still obvious Hall of Famer. Mike Trout's going to be a Hall of Famer if he never does another thing in baseball. But uh, I think people would like to see him go get back to being healthy, playing 150 games a year and, and putting up those kind of numbers. 100%. I agree with all that. I thought Ken Griffey was going to be the greatest player ever before injuries drops him. He was on his way to potentially being one of the best ever to do. It still is. But if he doesn't get hurt, maybe he breaks the home run record. There was definitely a possibility of that happening, I thought. Yeah. Um, Mike Trout is phenomenal. I really hope he can stay in the field, too. And he, there has been more injuries than, than last year, like, Aaron Judge, I'm a Yankees guy, so Aaron Judge has actually played like more than him like in the last two years, which I found surprising because Judge has a lot of injury issues too. But we just want to see our guys healthy. Hopefully he can return because the calf injury is tricky. No one thought it was going to be the whole year, but then as the Angels fell out of it, they probably thought it wasn't worth pushing it. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the season, he was 100% healthy. Like he could have played. If, they, if the Angels were, you know, had a chance to go to the playoffs – he would have come back there and played for the last week or two or whatever. But uh, at that point, you know, there was, there was no reason to, to throw him back out on the field. I agree with that a hundred percent because they weren't going to playoffs. So speaking of playoffs, we do want to see Mike Trout in the big stage. I think everyone wants to see that because the only appearance was 2012. Now the angels had to know with Syndergaard. They re-signed the Glacius. They picked up um, Lorenzen. Uh, I'm not sure if they threw anyone else in there. I know that's some of the stuff they've done. Loop. That's a big one. There we go. Yeah. yeah, so the Angels have had a nice offseason before the lockout. Do you think they're looking to add more pitching once the lockout resumes? Oh, yeah. They they still need some more pitching. And uh, Perry Manassian has said you can never have enough pitching. So 
I think once the lockout is over, they're going to try to maybe get another starter and they could probably use a couple more relievers. So there's going to be a big scramble, I think, for all the teams to to try to scoop up all the, the guys that are left. Uh, the Angels definitely could use uh, two or three more pitchers. I agree with that 100% because their offense is set, if you think about it, especially if Rod Zone comes back. Um, I guess I'll go to Rod Zone. He had a disappointing year with the injuries, and he hasn't exactly lived up to his contract either. How are they? How's the team feeling about him? Well, he's he's had two years. Uh, in 2020, although it was a 60 game season, he was great. He was a top 10 MVP guy. He was everything that they expected. That's true. Uh, and 2021 was not, you know, it didn't work out. He he got hurt, and uh, I think he he said that he was kind of playing the whole year with his hip issue that led to the other problems, and also made him not perform as well when he was healthy. So, I think that it's uh, you know the jury's still out on him. Um, if he has a, another bad year in 22, then people are certainly going to be pretty down on him. But, uh, you know, if he comes back and he's healthy, I would expect that he is a pretty productive player in the middle of the order again. That's a very fair point. I liked Rod Zone a lot. The thing was, I don't know how you felt about this, but I do want to go back in time a little bit because I was at the winter meetings. I know the Angels really tried hard to get Garrett Cole. Obviously, I think they may have been the runner-up to the Yankees. And then... It seemed to be that they were ready to throw the money at Rod Zone. I thought they should have tried to get another pitcher, maybe like a Ryu or something, instead of just going to add some more hitting when they needed more pitching. I'm curious what you thought back then. Well, they made a, a, a good run at uh, three pitchers that winter. It was uh, Zach Wheeler, Steven Strasburg, and Garrett Cole. Okay. And uh, they didn't get any of them. And then I think that they, after that, they, they felt like the next tier of pitchers were really – you know, kind of risky injury risks, maybe not worth the money they were asking for. And so then they just wanted to go for like the uh, safer route, what they felt, you know, position players, generally speaking, are safer bets than pitchers. Uh, you know, Anjin Ryu signed for $20 million a year. And he's a guy who had been really hurt a lot of the previous three or four years. So that's kind of a big gamble. I don't think they really were comfortable with uh, Dallas Keuchel is another guy who was on the market that year. Uh, a lot of people would have liked to see the Angels sign. He had a good short season for the White Sox in 2020, and then in 2021 he was terrible. So, you know, it's it's hard with pitchers. Uh, everybody wants to get a pitcher who is really consistent, good all the time, and never gets hurt. And I'm saying, well, that's Garrett Cole. That's the hmm. entire sum of that group, and that's why he got the biggest contract ever for a pitcher. Otherwise, it's pretty tough to find something like that. I agree 100%. They just haven't had good luck with their pitchers. Uh, it's been the Achilles heel, I would say. You know better than me, of course. But that's an interesting thing. I didn't know that they were in on Zach Wheeler. That would have been a huge move. Yeah, they really wanted him. But uh, I believe that uh, his wife was having a baby, and they live on the East Coast. So I think that, that you know playing on the West Coast at that time really didn't appeal to him. Yeah, because I saw, I think, maybe the White Sox who was offered more money. I think another team offered more than the Phillies, too. But he went there because then you said. So this is going to be a wild card question, and I've heard some things. I don't know if there's any truth to this at all. Do you think the Angels would even consider going for Carlos Correa? Um, I would never say never just because, you know, I didn't think they were going to go for Anthony Rendon. But uh, I think that they really, you know, need pitching, and I think they understand that. And uh, if they were going to kind of reverse course and get a big position player, it would be more likely, I think, to be an outfielder because 
two of the best trade chips they have to get pitching are outfielders, Joe Adele and Brandon Marsh. So if they say got like uh, Chris Bryant, then they could be a little more easy to trade one of those other guys to maybe get a pitcher. So then maybe then you can get, you know, Herman Marquez or Luis Castillo or something like that. So that way they could still get some pitching, even if they do sign a, a player like that. So I think that sort of scenario that I think is more likely than the Carlos Correa, because, you know, they have infielders and Correa, you know, is a good player. He would just suck up a lot of money and then they would still have the same pitching issues. Yeah, that's a good point. I was curious because I guess you never know. The Angels do love to make the big splash moves for the bats, but I 100% agree they got to attack that pitching. And pitching, and someone that's interesting on my radar is Carlos Rodzone. Do you think the Angels will entertain that? Well, I mean, I think he's the best starting pitcher left on the free agent market. So uh, I think the Angels and everybody else who still needs a starter is probably going to get on the phone with him the minute the lockout's over. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, I think, you know, after him, there's a pretty big gap to the next best starter. Then you're looking at some guys, you know, with some some age and injury issues, you know, Clayton Kershaw, that kind of thing. Um, so I think Rendon is going to be probably the first guy that a lot of guys call when the lockout ends. I couldn't agree more with that, especially because Kershaw's probably narrowed down to the Dodgers and the Rangers, you would think. Yeah, it seems like a logical assumption. So I know it's pro this is a really tough thing to ask at this point. So I'm going to ask for your best educated guess. What do you think is going to end up happening with this lockout? When do we do spring training? Do we get delayed opening day? I mean, I think all along the sides have been figuring out that the, the as long as you get 162 games in, it doesn't matter what happens before that. So they probably went to the calendar and they said, all right, if we're still going to get 162 games, was the latest we can start the season? What's the latest we can start spring training? And the answer to that question is probably like March 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, something like that for the start of spring training. So I think all along they're just figuring, all right, well, if we want to start spring training by like March 2nd or 3rd, we need to just have a, an agreement by, you know, February 24th or something like that. So in that sense, they still have time. And I think they're going to use every minute of it that they have. But I believe that they'll probably – get a deal somewhere around then. And uh, it looks like they have just this week been making some progress. They're at least agreeing on some concepts. It's just a matter of getting the numbers down, you know? So uh, I'm not really worried that the, that the season is going to be affected by all this. I think spring training is probably going to start a little late, but I think we should probably be good to go for 162 games. I'm in the same mindset with you. Like, I know it hasn't been the best look by any means. The optics of the situation are absolutely terrible. Uh, you're trying to grow the game. You have them scrubbing stuff off the website. You can't even access the film room anymore. You can't see the players' pictures. It's not a good look, especially when football's booming after what we saw last weekend. Yeah, it's definitely – it's 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 a bad look. But then also, you know, it was pointed out to me, or I read somewhere, that in 1990 there was a lockout and the season started late. And uh, I didn't even remember that that happened. And I was 20 years old at the time, so I was fully into baseball. And it's still, you know, as long as – they play the whole season. Nobody's going to remember this, you know, at the end, at the end of the day. So I think that's probably what they're they're banking on. People will that's forget. A, that's a good point. The purists like us, like, well, no, but like the casual fans not going to remember, like when they look back. Oh, the lockout. Like some normal, some people don't even know the lockout's happening. It's only the people that really dial in, like the ones like on here and then stuff like that to know. But um, yeah, it's been a. It's all a process for sure. What missing movement. But the one thing it did that I think you like too, 
it created a lot of excitement before the lockout, but it came with the caveat, oh, they're locked out now. But that like few days before was really exciting when we saw those moves. Yeah, that was pretty fun, you know, that uh, kind of deadline. And, and I'm, I'm sure that also all the baseball people enjoyed having the holidays off. So uh, I <laughs> yeah. wouldn't be shocked if when they, they do come back and have an agreement, they go, hey, you know, that was pretty neat. Why don't we from now on have like a December 15th deadline and then, you know, business starts again on like January 2nd or something like that. So it not only creates like a big rush of news in December, but then it gives everybody a little time off, which I think both things would be good for for the fans and for the people inside the game. That's a really good point. I think they could benefit from something like that just because um, you see how the NFL and the NBA do. I know they have caps, but the free agency happens quick. It's exciting. Everyone knows who's going where. I think baseball, you would have to break it down in two parts because it's a lot of complications. I don't think you could do it all like before Christmas. I think that'd be too fast. Yeah, you wouldn't want to do everything by then because then you'd be left with nothing after. And and basically, you know, we have this lockout now that everybody says, oh, it's terrible. There's nothing happening. But if we had a deadline where everything had to happen before, you know, X date, then after that, we would have nothing happen. So you have to yeah. get a little of both. It's a long off season, you know. Baseball has the longest season, but it still feels like the long off season takes forever, especially this year. Not to me, the off season always feels too short. <laughs> right, because when you're on the grind every day and working, you probably enjoy some of the time off. Yeah, gives me time to write a book. Now, oh, yep, that's always fun, and I can't wait to purchase this book when it comes out. We really like Otani at this brand. Uh, Grunt Talk Simon B. It's my uh, little thing here. I normally wear a hat, but I wore Shohei today. We have a website. We do uh, videos on YouTube. We have a lot of Shohei highlights. We do some writing. have a card shop, uh, whole nine yards. Sounds good. Yep. So we love getting guests on and do interviews like this. So we'll, we'll stick with some baseball topics and spring training. So you said you think that spring training only has to be around a month or so. Do you think the normal time period for spring training is too long? I mean, I think it's too long for position players. I don't think it's too long for the pitchers. I think the pitchers need the whole six weeks. Uh, the starting pitchers, I should say. The relievers probably don't either. So what I imagine would happen if they have a shortened spring training is they would just start the season with expanded rosters a little bit, which is what they did in 2020, as you recall, because we had the summer camp, which was only like three weeks. So just at the beginning of the season, teams got to have 28 players for you know a couple weeks, and they had 27 players for a couple weeks. Uh, I think we'd probably do something like that again because the pitchers would not be the starting pitchers would not be ready to really throw their normal workloads. So you'd probably need some extra relievers at the beginning if if spring training were shortened. But but I mean that would be a pretty minor adjustment that I don't think would bother anybody. And I, and I think they could probably do that and and still get by with like a month of spring training. I agree with you 100%. I think it's everyone's concerned about the starting pitchers. Um, the bullpen guys could definitely do it. I mean, they only throw an inning or two at a time for the most part. Unless there are long relievers, which is more prominent now. Well, it's mixing and matching of both guys, too. They're basically starters at this point. But position players, yeah, I mean, I feel like they could pick it up. Um, uh, what's been the most challenging part of this lockout? I, would, I guess that's another question I could ask. Uh, you know, for me, it hasn't been too bad. Yeah, I've been doing, you know, I had this book to write, so that kept me pretty busy. Lockout actually was good timing for me in that sense. Uh, I did a lot of the stuff on the book. And, uh, you know, this is the time of year when I have no problem with a little bit of a downtime. So uh, I'm going to be busy enough when spring training starts. So, uh, you know, as long as they get the lockout settled in time to have our normal season, that's 
it doesn't bother me a whole lot. That's a fair point because the pace of the offseason has been slow anyway. So who knows like how things would actually be playing if it was normal. Because a lot of times it's been slow. Though that winter meetings two years ago was very exciting. But more times than not, we're waiting till February to see the big guys sign anyway sometimes. Yeah, that does happen. And, and certainly, you know, when the lockout ends, it's going to be crazy. There's going to be, you know, especially if it, if it ends, you know, late in February to where spring training has got to start pretty soon. There's going to be this massive, you know, explosion of, of signings and trades and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, one thing I think that the teams are allowed to discuss trades with each other during are the lockout. They? That's uh, been I'm a- pretty sure they are. Okay. Yeah, they just can't talk to the players so that you can't obviously complete a trade or anything like that. But they could be talking to each other. And uh, so I'm curious to see if when the lockout ends, there's going to be like 10 trades announced like that day or something like that. That's a very good point. I was curious about that, like what they what they're doing with that, like how the situation would look. Well, um... Yeah, you know, I asked some people, I'm pretty sure that uh, the, the teams just can't talk to their players, but the teams can talk to each other. Got you. There we go. Should have had that said a while ago. But um, it's um, definitely interesting to see what happens with that. I know we saw some stuff that say a Suzuki is going to potentially be a Red Sox. Then that got refuted by like five other teams. So who knows? But I would love to see like as soon as baseball's back, you just get like a million trades that get announced. It'll be nice to see something happen. Yes, for sure. Yep. It's been a long and dull off season, but the rush before was good. So um, you're in the BWA or BBWWA, I think, or however you say it. But how long have you been a member of that? Uh, since 1997. That was my first year as a, as a major league baseball writer. Nice. So you started with Oakland or San Francisco? Uh, both of them. I covered them both at the same time for 11 years. So I pretty much... Uh, they have spring training very close to each other, so that was very convenient. I went and stayed one place, and I would just kind of go back and forth between the two ballparks. And then when the season started, you know, the way the schedule works, it's the same as, like, with the Mets and Yankees, where, you know, one's at home, the other's on the road. So I would kind of just stick to whichever one was at home. But I would make occasional road trips, you know, like if Barry Bonds was coming up to a home run milestone, you know, I would go on the road for that. You know, when the Giants were in the playoffs, so I'd go on the road for that. If the A's were in the playoffs, so I'd go on the road for that. So. Uh, I got to go on the road for the good stuff, and uh, but not everything. So, which was convenient for me because I had little kids at the time. So. Okay, that's a good situation. So, what was your most uh, rewarding experience in that in that time frame? Like, what did you take away from that? Uh, you know, everybody hates Barry Bonds, but the show that he put on, you know, in those years where he won the MVP every year and where he was chasing the home run records, it was pretty impressive to watch. Uh, you know, when those at the peak of his craziness and, you know, like 2002, 2003, 2004, when he would just come up and they would throw him like one strike a game and he would hit a homer. That was pretty incredible to watch. And uh, also I was covering the A's all the, the money ball years and all that stuff. And that was really pretty fun to watch that team, you know, just keep producing good teams, even with not spending any money. That was a really fun time in the Bay. You definitely got really lucky with that because – the Giants were going off with Barry Bonds. They almost won the World Series. Oakland's winning all those games despite not paying anyone. And then the Moneyball movie comes out of it. So that must have been a really crazy time back then. Yeah, I've seen a lot of good teams. I think that uh, I think we did we counted this when Otani won the MVP, and I think it was the, like the twelfth time that I've covered the MVP. 
Wow. Because I got all these Barry Bonds. I got Mike Trout, Miguel Tejada, Jason Giambi, Jeff Kent. A lot of a lot of MVPs that I've covered. That's very impressive stuff. Um, you got you've definitely seen some really great players. Trout, Bonds, Otani, just to name a few. And Oakland had their guys, you know, had Mark Mulder, Tim Hudson, Barry Zito. That staff was really good too. Giambi's actually one of my favorite players. So I'll ask you, what was he like? He was great. Uh, actually, he was one of my favorites too. Uh, so much so that I actually told his dad one time, uh, he said, I just want to let you know that of all the uh, the really, you know, star level players, your son is one of the best to talk to, best to deal with. The opposite of Barry Bonds, basically. And uh, so I, really, <laughs> I really enjoyed enjoyed my time with him in Oakland. He was uh, he was a good guy. I love hearing that because I really did like him when he was over with the Yankees and stuff. Uh, I can tell he's got a fun personality. It's cool that he got to offset Barry Bonds, so not everyone was like that. You got to have some good guys too. Yeah, it's always nice when uh, you know. A lot of times the the best players to deal with are kind of the second tier players you know the relievers or the bench guys because they just don't get sort of spoiled by having to talk to the media all the time and so they're in a good mood about it and uh, the higher up you get you know the more everyday guys there are that get tired of the media all the time and some of them can become kind of grumpy you know for lack of a better word so when you get a guy like a giambi or tony Gwynn was like this also who is you know a star level player but is still great with the media that's like a real great person to cover that's a good piece of advice you you literally read my mind i was going to ask you like the tips to try to like talk to certain players and stuff so i have heard this before too like you kind of want to start at the bottom and work your way up like as you get higher sometimes i guess it gets a bit more complicated yeah the uh the, the bottom guys on the roster are usually better to uh to start out with they're usually more happy to talk that's a good point because I guess they're appreciating the moment more. The other guys are kind of just like, oh, like this comes with the territory. I know the media can be a lot sometimes, especially during the time you were covering it. I know it's not as intense as our market maybe in New York, but back then it might have been, especially with the Giants and Barry Bonds. I know he had reporters up there all the time. Oh, it was never as intense as New York. Uh, I could promise you that one. I, I actually have kind of a funny story. The uh, So the Yankees opened up in Oakland one year and it was whatever season uh, that Billy Wagner, uh, I'm pretty sure it was Billy Wagner's first season with the Mets. And uh, they, the Mets played their opener earlier in the day and Billy Wagner came out to enter Sandman, I think. And so then when I got into the Yankees clubhouse, all the reporters were waiting to talk to Mario Rivera to get his reaction to Billy Wagner using his song. Like that was the big story that everybody <laughs> wanted to, to find out about. And right there, I was like, whoa, that is a New York market. That's that's definitely crazy. That's a funny story. I think I kind of slightly remember that when I was younger when that happened. But like, I know Wagner was a big deal. Enter Sandman was iconic. I always associated with Mariano, who, of course, only unanimous Hall of Famer. But um, that was a crazy situation. I always thought that Billy Wagner was pretty good. If I'm correct, you didn't vote for him on your ballot, right? No, I did not. But he's right there. He's right on the borderline for me. He's probably one of the hardest omissions for me. Uh, every year I think about it. Um, I still may vote for him, but he's definitely right on the borderline as far as I'm concerned. That's fair. I know relievers have a different standard. There's not many of them that get in there, so I can see why he gives you problems. I think he was pretty good, but 
I mean, maybe it's not up to snuff. I know there's only like how many relievers are in there, like six or seven. I know it's not a lot. Yeah, it's not very many, and and most of them are guys that sort of pitched in the different era. You know, like uh, Bruce Suter, Raleigh Fingers, where they were still pitching like two innings a game sometimes, and really in the guys in quite of the kind of the modern relief era, you know, it's Eckersley, Rivera, and Trevor Hoffman, and that's it. So uh, it's tough to crack that group. Yeah, it's a definitely a tough class. Um, yeah, the Hall of Fame process is always interesting to me. Another one I'm going to ask you about, you covered him too, and I'm not sure why Jeff Kent doesn't get more love than he does in the Valley. He's another guy that I've, I've thought about, uh, and I still may vote for him too. Uh, he's also right there. Um, you know, I, I don't, I can't argue with anybody who does vote for him. Um, I think that, you know, if you're the, the best hitting second baseman of all time, which he probably is, then, you know, you're certainly in the conversation. I think his problem is his defense is not up to like some of the other Hall of Fame middle infielders, but, you know, it's, he definitely has a good case to make for sure. I think so too. I think the numbers are there for him and I'm surprised he's going to get more recognition. I know maybe towards, I know he's getting towards the end of his time too. So he might not make enough of a jump to get in there. He's got like what, two years left. Um, I think one or two, I think next year is going to be real interesting because the ballot is going to be really cleared out because obviously there's, you know, the big four guys that we talk about uh, are all going to be off, you know, Bonds, Clemens, Schilling and Sosa. They're all coming off the ballot. David Ortiz is now going to be off the ballot. And I think, the you know, the only new guy coming on next year who's really going to be strong consideration, I think, is Carlos Beltran. Yes. So uh, there's going to be a lot of room for people to vote for some people that they haven't voted for before. And for me, that's going to be, you know, Jeff Kent, Billy Wagner, Scott Rowland, Andrew Jones. These are all guys that are, you know, I'm on the fence about. And, uh, you know, and Todd Helton, who I voted for this year, is obviously still going to be there. So it could be a big jump for a lot of those kind of guys. Yeah, I really like Todd Helen's case, too. I know the whole course field thing goes against him, but I feel like his numbers are good enough, even if you factor that in, to be a Hall of Famer. Yeah, I didn't vote for him for the first few years because of the course field thing. But, you know, the more I looked at it, uh, I think I was probably penalizing him too much for that. Uh, I mean, if you just take his road numbers, basically – Todd Helton on the road was basically the same hitter as Scott Rowland. So, uh, you know, and Scott, and that really is all of Scott Rowland. And Scott Rowland also played in Cincinnati, which is also a very good hitter's park, too. So nobody seems to count that against him. So I think that Todd Helton probably, uh, you know, I did vote for him this year, and I, I think he should get in. I agree with you 100%. I think that Todd Helen should get in there. Scott Rowland's right in the edge. He should get it. He could get it next year. He's pretty close. He might make that jump. It's needed. It's hard with the uh, the guys who uh, so much of their case is built on defense. You know, that's Roland, Andrew Jones, Omar Vizquel, because, you know, the defensive metrics we have are not really – a lot of people don't trust them. You know, even teams are kind of dubious on them. So the guys who, uh, who don't have just the offensive numbers to go and we have to look at their defense, it, it's more difficult. Yeah, I agree with that too because I know – Hall of Fame voters, I mean, I'm not sure what you got, how you guys value the new metrics opposed to the old school numbers. Because I know, like, they used to look at the old school numbers, and now I think people are starting to factor in the stuff you said. So I'm curious, like, where are you st where are you stands on that? Yeah, I like a lot of the new metrics. Uh, not all of them. I think there's some that are 
you know, like a FIP, for example, fielding independent pitching is not really that new anymore. But I think it's a number that I think people just need to get rid of because I think it, it seemed new and we didn't have anything better. But now we have so many better things that we've kind of moved on past that. Uh, and I think a lot of the defensive metrics really need to get better. And hopefully now that we got StatCast, you know, is, is giving much more accurate numbers for, you know, what kind of range a player has and that kind of thing. So I think hopefully we're, uh, we're getting there to where we have better, better ways to analyze guys' defense. Yeah, I, the metrics are kind of puzzling to me, too. On defense, I can't really tell you I know them that well. Like, I'm trying to get more versed with them. Like, what does the DRS, like, really mean, you know, with OOA and all that? Like, because Gio Rochella doesn't grade well on them, but he looks like a good defensive third baseman to me. I know they say it's because his range isn't that good and it makes it harder for him to get to certain balls. I read, like, an explanation on it the other day. Yeah, it's really hard. I've written a bunch of stories on this because Mike Trout is another guy that – Everybody thinks he's a really good outfielder, but the defensive metrics always say he's not a very good outfielder, which is hard for people to understand. But uh, I think a lot of it has to do with, like, your positioning. And, uh, like, in Mike Trout's case, he plays pretty deep, which is something that the Angels do because uh, they don't want him running into the fence full speed, you know? They figure if you're playing a little deeper, then you're not going to – you have a little more time to get to the fence, so you're not going to be running 100% speed out of control, slamming into it. And uh, plus, he's better diving in front of him than behind him. Well, anyway, so he plays deep. And what that means is there's all these balls that fall in front of him that nobody judges him for, like, oh, you should have caught that ball. But that counts against his defensive, you know, uh, metrics in a lot of cases because these ball, these are balls that other center fielders are catching. He's not catching them just because he's starting in a different spot. Now, some of the more modern stats do not count that against him. So that's why they're still trying to – kind of adjust them and that's why you, you have to kind of know what you're looking at with all the defensive stats and Gio Rochelle is probably the same thing it's probably the balls that he's not getting to that nobody you know watching the game thinks oh you know that was a bad play by him but it's counting against his metrics that's a good point with Mike Trout I'm happy you brought up Trout because I used to think he was a great defensive uh, center fielder too and then the numbers started coming out I know he's also getting a little bit older too it seems like his stolen base game isn't what it used to be either so Maybe he has lost a touch of speed and has been injuries. So, but that is a good factor you told me about playing by the fence, not him wanting to get hurt. I could definitely skew some numbers. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I think that he uh, was kind of skewed in the opposite direction. Of people thought he was better than he really was because he okay. made some really spectacular catches and robbed some balls. There was a ball in Baltimore that everybody remembers. He went over the fence to catch, and so people all expected, "Oh my gosh, he's going to be this win a million Gold Gloves." And uh, I think he was not really at that level. And and then I think the metrics put him at the other end of the spectrum, which is because of some of the reasons we talked about. So I think he's really in between. I think he's a, a very good center fielder. I don't think that he's probably the best center fielder in baseball uh, by any means. You know, he's probably not deserving of a gold glove so far, but he's certainly also not where the defensive metrics put him either. He's pretty good. Okay, that's fair. It's good. That's a nice assessment. Good that we got the inside scoop on that. Uh, sometimes, like, because we don't really fully see Trout on the West Coast. That's the other thing. I want to see more primetime Angel games. Like, I feel like the, they need to do a better job of marketing Trout. I know he's a quiet and humble guy, but I feel like they fail with a lot of marketing aspects in baseball. Like, they need to market their players better, I think. Well, I mean, that's a baseball problem, and that's in the book, too. You can read about that in the book. Uh, oh, I will. I think the, the problem with 
marketing baseball players is that, uh, you know, you watch an NBA game and LeBron is out there on the floor doing something for the whole game, basically. You know, football game, the quarterback has got the ball in his hands every play. Baseball game, you bat for like seven or eight minutes a game, you know? So it's hard to uh, to really say, oh, I'm going to tune into an Angels game to watch Mike Trout because, you know, he's only going to bat for eight minutes. So I think that's just naturally a big difference between the sports. That's a fair point. Someone in here is asking when the book's going to come out. Uh, it's going to be available in July, right around the All-Star game. So, uh, But you can pre-order it right now. You can go on Amazon and type in uh, the name of the book is uh, Showtime, S-H-O. Type that in on Amazon. It'll pop right up, and uh, you can pre-order it. That's um, that's a great information to have. We'll definitely take that with us. Um, I'm definitely going to be interested in that book. That's a fascinating season, and I like the time it comes out, like a year after the last All-Star game, which is so critical for him. I think it's going to be a good time because at the time people get decompressed and they can take a little break. Um, it's not as action-packed that day. You get a few days off. So I think that's a great strategy with that. Everybody can take the three-day All-Star break and read the whole book. Yep, I'm going to read right through it. I can assure you with that. So um, I'm trying to think what else quickly. So what's um, what's something you would say that's been the surprising part of your journey? Like what was the most surprising part anywhere you've been, I guess? Maybe something you didn't expect that was like a difficult challenge. That's a tough question. Um, I mean, I think one of the hardest parts of my job is just coming up with story ideas because – uh, you know, there's 162 baseball games in a year. And, you know, on a baseball team, there's really only probably 15 players that anybody's interested in. And uh, so it's hard to write a story every day without getting redundant about the, about those guys. And so the thing that kind of keeps me up at night sometimes is like, oh, what am I going to write tomorrow? You know, what's going to happen? Because there's a lot of times there's just not very much happening. Uh Usually something does happen though, and it uh, news presents itself. But but you're always kind of worried about like what's what's going to be the story today, and that happens all the time through a whole season. It's a very long season, so that's why I'm not minding this lockout so much. Yeah, I guess it's good for you to get some time to decompress. Um, I'm anxious for the season because I just love being out there. Uh, gonna get to as many games as I can, trying to get to myself in a position that I could be in your shoes one day, hopefully. Uh, I do aspire to report for the Yankees. I have trying to get into the press box and all that stuff. So hopefully things get better with that. Um, but the problem is COVID's still been a mess. You guys can't get into the locker room still. I guess that's a fun question. Well, maybe not fun, but interesting question to ask. Do you think they're going to let you guys back in anytime soon? Well, I hope so. Uh, it's really changed the job. It's you, you can't get the, uh, you know, we talked about, you know, the access to players and, you know, the, the good guys you want to talk to and all that. And a lot of that, and you have to be in the clubhouse for that to happen. So uh, the fact that we haven't been in the clubhouse since COVID started is, is very difficult. Um, I think we're assuming that, you know, in 2022, we're going to be back to the way it was before to where we can go in the clubhouse. Maybe we'll have to wear a mask. I don't know, but uh, hopefully COVID is under control enough and enough people are vaccinated to where we can get back in the clubhouse and do our jobs the way we did them before COVID, because that's really the best for the readers, you know, and the fans. That's how we provide them 
the information about what's going on is from talking to the players. Uh, if you're stuck only getting what the manager tells you in a Zoom, you're not really going to get the whole story a lot of times. Um, and I think that there's, you know, I'll give you a quick example. Last year, the Angels, uh, at the at the begin early in the season when we still weren't really allowed to talk to the players, uh, the Angels played a game in Houston, and uh, Joe Madden gave uh, Justin Upton, Mike Trout, and David Fletcher all the day off the same day. And everybody was very puzzled to why he did that. Um, and he had some reason about just they needed a break or whatever. A couple days later, I'm in Boston, and it was right at the very beginning of when we could talk to the players again. And I got to talk to David Fletcher. I had to do it outside, like standing by the dugout. But I talked to him, and uh, he told me that he had actually been hurt. He had like a little hip issue or something like that. It wasn't a major deal, but it was just a reason he couldn't play. And that was the kind of thing that if I weren't able to talk to the players, we would never have known. So there's things like that all the time. So uh, the reason I mention this is just so the fans out there understand that us being in the clubhouse is not just, you know, for our benefit that we get to, you know, hang out with the players like they're our buddies or something like that. But it's how we provide information to the fans. And that's why we hopefully, you know, can be back in there. I completely understand what you're saying. The Zoom world has made things more difficult and certain things easier. But for certain things and knowing what's going on behind the scenes, you can't get that unless you see a person. Like someone was telling me, I don't know what person it was. We've interviewed a few people, but someone was telling me that like they could see players wear ice packs with certain areas that you like you wouldn't even know they had an injury if you weren't in the locker room, like if they were icing their arm or something. Like small, subtle things like that you miss out on if you're not in there. Yeah, I mean, you just like to – you need to be able to talk to the players to find out what's going on with them. And, um, you know, you just can't do it on a Zoom. And even though you, you do get to ask them questions on a Zoom, there's a lot of people on there. It's it's very busy. Um, the fact that it's recorded and it's there for everybody to show means the players are not necessarily going to be as relaxed as they are when you're just chatting with them in front of their locker. And sometimes they don't tell you the same things. And then the other problem is you have to wrestle with everyone that's been asked, trying to get the same questions and see, like, what if you had the question and someone else asked it, then, it, like, you don't just get it. Like, everyone gets it. Like, it's definitely not the best situation. Right. Yeah. There was a last year in uh, spring training, there was some talk about how they were using different baseballs. Do you remember the story about how the, they were going to use, like, a less lively baseball mm -hmm. during the season? So I was trying to get uh, – talk to some of the pitchers about if they could tell the difference. And normally the way I would do that story was just one day I would go in the clubhouse and I'd walk around and I would talk to 10 different pitchers about it in 20 minutes and I'd be done. But the way I had to do it last year, because we only had Zoom, was one pitcher a day would come up on the Zoom and I would ask him the question in front of everybody about the baseballs. And I'd do it again the next day and again the next day and again the next day. And all the other reporters were like making fun of me. And go, oh, there's Fletcher asking his baseball question again. I'm like, hey, that's... That's the only way I can do this story now because this is the way we have to talk to the players. So it's definitely not uh, good for journalism. Not at all. And to anyone that says the reporters need to be in there, that's a load of crap. I mean, they need to be in there. It's important. That's how the game came up. That's how we got all this information. That's important. They're saying, oh, they don't need to be in there anyway. Like some players, I don't know like, if anyone has said they like it better without the reporters in there, but um, they need to be in there. We need to go back to how things were. Uh, let's not forget the intricacies of being close, like the intimacy of like seeing certain things is still pretty valuable. Oh yeah, definitely. I, and I think that a lot of people just associate going in the clubhouse with the post game. 
you know, and it's for post game. I actually don't mind not going in the clubhouse because in that situation, it is this, you know, we all do need to talk to the same two or three people and we have mostly all the same questions. So it is actually easier and it doesn't bother me that much not going in after the game, but all these things before the game are what we're really missing out on. And like, you know, is a guy hurt. What's he doing to change uh, his swing? You know, How's he getting along with his other player? How are the coaches helping him? All these other things that you don't really talk about after a game. But that's the kind of thing that you, you need to be in the clubhouse before the game to to find out. That's a great point. I feel like the pregame might be a better scene because I was able to go to a Marlins game, actually, uh, on, the, on the field. So that was my first experience doing that last year. I feel like that's the time you kind of get more accessible, like it's not as crazy. You kind of have more options. Tell me about how the pregame normally works for you. Well, you pregame now we can talk to some guys on the field, which is probably what you were doing. And you still do – you get some access there, but it's still not as good as the clubhouse because the guys are busy. They're out there right. working. You know, they're, yeah. they're taking batting practice or stretching or whatever. And you can get them, like, on their way in or out, you know, in the dugout a little bit. But it is not the same as when a guy's just sitting there in the clubhouse watching TV or whatever for 20 minutes and you can go up and have a real conversation with him. That's, like, a totally different thing than just trying to grab him as he's running to stretch. Like, hey, can I ask you two questions? You know, that's it's not the same. Yeah, it was definitely not easy for my first time doing it. I was a little, it was a little bit overwhelming. I was kind of like, whoa, like, here we are. Like, Reds players, Marlins players, they're trying to get ready. They don't even know who I am. I'm like, uh, all right, let's do this. Yeah, that's tough. So... I guess I'll stick to that and I'll follow this up. So what advice would you have for someone like me that's trying to break in, like with player interviews or like just trying to like work on my craft with journalism, whether it's writing, like videos or anything you think that could be helpful for me? Well, I think the main thing that you need to do, uh, the most important job of, a, of any kind of a journalist is to learn stuff that other people don't know. That's it. Okay. Uh, you know, a lot of people think about, you know, it's, providing opinion or analysis or, you know, sitting there and writing a story about why the Yankees should sign this player or whatever. And that's not really ultimately what your job is as a, as a beat writer. Uh, it's to, uh, to find out things. And the way you find out things is by talking to people and having relationships with people. And, uh, you know, the, the way you do that is you just have to get out there and, and cover things. It doesn't have to be major league baseball things. You can just do anything that there's a, an outlet for you know, high school sports, college sports, whatever, go out there, talk to people, find stories that are interesting that they don't know about already and write those. And if you do that and uh, develop an audience and, and learn your craft at that, then you can do that at major league baseball level. And, uh, and that's basically how you get there. You, you, I, I think people that think they're going to get there just by sitting and writing their opinion on things that they watch on TV, it's, you know, that is something, but it is not, you know, something that people are going to pay you for because anybody can do that. You know, if you have a skill that basically anybody can do, then there's no reason for somebody to pay for it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. That's a good point. Um, I definitely mix it up in that aspect. But you do make a good point because if I do Yankees opinions and like analysts and that, like, yeah, that's cool. But like anyone could do that. Like, I might do a good job with it, but it's I'm throwing myself in a haystack, basically, as a needle, like with a bunch of other people that are doing the same thing. And um, I am working on some minor league stuff as well, so I think maybe that could be a good outlet. I'll definitely start trying to exploring more because the minors don't get the coverage they deserve. I could definitely try to emphasize some of that. 
And I think that could be a good outlet. I'm going to try to go to more of those games this year. Last year was the first time I really started going, and I did enjoy my experiences there. I got to talk to a few players there, kind of get to build a little practice and reps. So I'll definitely continue down that path. Yeah, I mean, if you if you talk to a minor league player and you find out what his story is or what makes him good or whatever and share that with readers, that's actually giving them something that they can't have otherwise. If you just tell them, here's what I think of Aaron Judge's swing, they already can figure that out for themselves. They can watch on TV the same as you and make the same opinion of Aaron Judge. So you're actually providing a lot more, you know, talking about minor league players and, and writing about them. That's a good point, and I'm definitely going to take that advice in stride. I appreciate you giving me that info, um, and I'm going to take that to my, my best of my ability and make that work. All right, good luck. All right, so thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate this. You gave me a lot of great insight, um, a lot of good information I can use. Got some fun little nuggets in there everywhere. Angels, Giants, your book about Shohei Otani, which comes out in July around the all-star break. I'm so excited to read that. We even got some lockout updates in and maybe some trade talks going on behind the scenes. So I think we covered our bases pretty well today. Yeah, it was fun. Well, have a good one. Thank you so much. And we'll be in touch. Um, it's already out on the channel now, but I'll post it like in other places too. So thanks again. Enjoy your night. All right. Thanks for having me. All right. So for those that are just listening for the first time, our quick follows. Grunt Talks MLB is the website. Grunt Talk Sports is our podcast on Spotify. That's also on Apple. Grunt Talks team is going to be Instagram. My personal Twitter, Julian Gallardi one My personal Instagram, Julian Gallardi 11 We are on TikTok. We're on Twitch. Uh, Grunt Talks MLB everywhere. Grunt Talks NFL. And we got huge news with Bobby, our brother, broke the story with Brian Dable, the head coach of the New York Giants trying to get that out there and everything. That's a huge story. He was on it first, so we're really going to try to push that across as well. You could check his Twitter, BTOMS81, and the Twitter of Grunt Talks NFL, Facebook, all that great stuff. have a lot of stuff to do, including another interview tonight. We're everywhere except at a game. <laughs> yeah, we're everywhere except at a game. Yeah, at this point, yeah, just waiting for baseball to return. Um but one thing he did say was that he thinks we're going to be okay. He could see uh, he made this he made it seem like it could be late February, early March agreement, and that we could just squeeze spring training in time to get that 162 off. So that was a good takeaway from this. I want to thank everyone that listened, engaged in this. The comments, the questions were fantastic. I appreciate the support we all do as we're trying to grow this brand. We have over 9,000 subscribers on YouTube now. Hoping to get that 10K fairly soon, especially before opening day, whenever that might be. And, yup, we got huge, huge breaking news. And I think that's what we're going to have to focus on right now. So, everyone take care. We'll be back soon. Also, aced out for the Shohei Otani hat. Cubs signs a reliever to a minor league. Oh, I was talking about the football thing. I don't know what reliever that is. But, um, all right, last thing. A-Style Clothing, Shohei Otani. We have the link to buy this hat and many other ones for a discounted price in this video description. Check out all the player hats. Garrett Cole, Mike Trout, Aaron Judge, a lot of great hats. And we love these hats. I also have my Cole hat. Not on me in this right here, but I, you guys have seen me wear it before if you're fans of the show. So Aaron has several hats. Bobby has several hats. And we're going to push those across more. 
You also have the Grunt Talks MLB hats as well. So everyone, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate the support and we will be back soon.